our artists, if you put together our roster, we would have well over a hundred monthly million listeners just on our roster. So um, (laughs) that's a lot of streams. It's, it's probably 30 plus million streams uh, a week, just a week on Spotify alone, not counting all the other DSPs from just the artists that we manage. If you only had one minute to give music artists the best music career advice you could possibly give them, what would you say? Don't be in a hurry to get a team, get a label, get a this, get a that. Spend time working on your art, spend time making it good and allow it to gain some value. In addition to all of those things, uh, which perhaps why we're partners, um, I would also say that no one should love your music, your career as much as you do or as much as you should, uh, the manager, the record label, the publisher, etc. Um, we should sometimes be there to carry you when you're down. Um, but at the end of the day, no one should have more drive or hunger than you. And if you don't, that might be why this isn't working. So yeah, I'll let you guys introduce yourselves a little bit. So you guys have something called alter, ah, sorry, I started alternate side or a side, sometimes nicknamed on the site. And it's kind of portrayed as like an all-in-one artist development, artist management. And so I mean, you do a million things I looked at. So um, I guess, Zach, if you want to kind of give a give a little intro to what, what you guys do. Sure. Um, Avanj and I co-own a management company called Alternate Side um, and several other things. We have a publishing company called B-Side and we have a joint venture label with um, 300 Electra Music Group called Public Consumption. Uh, this you know, the goal of them all is to have artists be successful on their own terms uh, as much as humanly possible. Um, Avanj and I have been working with each other for 10 years as of this year, um, previously under a different management name. But since 2019, uh, we started fresh with Alternate Side. We uh, have nine total people at our company, inclusive of ourselves, from L.A. to London and everywhere in between. And um, we manage somewhere across all nine folks of around 40 plus artists um, in music spaces like alternative music, pop punk, SoundCloud rap, um, bedroom pop, in, you know, uh, acoustic indie folk music and, and much more. Yeah. Funny thing, I was looking at your roster and I saw that one of my like Longtime favorite bands is one of his on your roster. It's funny, uh, era, I don't know, which is funny because it's like not in like just you, you have a like 30 or so artists on there, and they're all across all these various sizes. From I didn't look at every single one, but I saw one that was like a hundred thousand monthly listeners on Spotify, and then another one that's like 1.5 million. Obviously, Spotify is not everything, but one thing that I thought would be a cool topic to branch into and spend some time on is one like at what point does an artist ready to, to work with a company either yours or, or a company like yours and if an artist is looking specifically for for help and development um what are things they should have in place before they even even consider it um i can start um i think it depends on the artist but for the most part you have to have something to manage if you want a manager so it, it a lot of times people look at us as a lifeline. 
like, oh, I just made this record and I, I want a manager to help me get signed to a label, help me do this. And it's like, no, you have to do a lot of the heavy lifting first because if it's working, we can only add value, but we can't just invent it all from scratch. Um, so I think having something to manage, AKA, there's a little bit of a fan base growing there. And it doesn't have to be huge, but has to be something there. Can't just be, hear songs, we think we're great. Um, on the flip side, you know, we have picked up artists that, that have never toured and don't really, we don't really know what their fan base is, but they're massive on YouTube or they have a viral hit again, but it's something to manage because with those things come label people knocking on their doors and emailing them and they don't know how to respond and they don't know who is who. So it's like, we can help connect the dots. We can help them increase their business when there is business to increase. So I think when a when an artist comes to us, what I particularly look for is, are there fans? Are there real fans of this artist? Do they Did they do some of the heavy lifting so that we know their recipe is working? Or are they looking to us to figure out their vision and, and visuals for videos and things like that, which which we help with, but it shouldn't, we shouldn't be the ones just dictating that. So so I like to see if they have fans and if they have a vision and if the songs are good, really. Yeah. <laughs> Is it great? I mean, at elementary, that's kind of does that hit me? And if it does, then that makes us more passionate, of course, to want to kill for them because we love the music. And of course if they're assholes or not, <laughs> which, you know, uh, we, it's a rule we try not to betray, but sometimes we actually do betray it. Right. Uh, if we think an artist has such success potential and, Ooh, a couple weeks in, we, we kind of figure out this person is not our speed. Uh, you know, that is typically a relationship we try to avoid. And I will say when, yeah. when we have made kind of the wrong portrayal, it almost always ends up to be the wrong decision <laughs> uh, as well, for sure. Yeah, I, I can imagine that it could be pretty toxic if, if the artist you're working with just, even if it's not them being like, it's not like necessarily them, it's just you guys don't click. You know, your, your style doesn't align with theirs. They have false expectations of what you should be doing. Then you're going to be miserable the whole time and they're going to be angry the whole time. And so it's just, I would be this awkward relationship. And I, it, it sounds like it should really be like for, for, for it to work ever, you know, no matter it's whether it's you guys or any, anyone, it should be, the relationship has to be there. Agreed. It's also a very intimate relationship. You know, it is business, but at the same time, you know, I, I sometimes we talk to our artists more than they talk to their own families. Um, so there has to be that trust. First and foremost, that's the most important thing to me is the trust. Do they do they yeah. can you trust them? Can they trust you? And that that relationship is crucial. So um if you don't click, it's just gonna it will come to an end. It might take a year, it might yeah. take six months, but it will hundred percent end. Yeah. And we've not clicked with certain artists and certain artists haven't clicked with us. And that happens just like dating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of consulting with, with artists on, on music marketing. Normally one, one big thing I do is, is I help artists with their ads and various ad platforms and things like that. And you know, there's, there's people I talk to more than my, my parents 
you know, it, I mean, I don't, I don't, I honestly should, should talk to my parents more, <laughs> but like I talk to, there's so many people I talk to like several hours a week, you know? And, uh, if, if I just like was dreading talking to them, I, you know, um, it, it wouldn't be very sustainable to keep doing that. Um, so, so on the, on the note of, on the opposite side, on the manager side or the, the everything you guys do side, how do you find artists? Do they normally come to you? Or are there certain places that, that you're looking and you reach out to them? Yeah, I think a lot of the answers or discussion on this chat might start with, it's really different for everything. Um, there, I really don't know that I've ever started working with an artist in the same way, right? Like um, some artists I've DM'd to have conversations with and that ends up management. Some artists, uh, I used to have a blog when I was in high school or in college and high school and I premiered one of the artist's songs and I was like, oh, wow, this is popular. I should really spend more time with it. And then I started managing with them because of that. Uh, some is because a booking agent reaches out that we work with and says, Hey, like I just started booking this like band that I think could be something. Why don't you take a meeting with them? They don't have a manager and every way is so different. I, I don't think I personally ever had an artist reach out to me that I have then started working. Usually it's kind of like we're chasing something, you know, or someone being a matchmaker between us. Um, we definitely do get a lot of inbound hey please check out my band i'd love you to work with me which is you know a very um nice thing to see obviously uh no those people don't necessarily know if we're good or horrible managers i think they're usually going based off of our roster yeah um but every, everything is different um every time is different especially as literally the world changes right we Avanj and i have been doing this for 10 years Avanj has been doing this for longer than 10 years Instagram did not exist when we started managing artists, right? Whereas like now, sometimes artists don't have email, so you can't email them. So you have to DM them and hope Instagram doesn't filter it out, right? So like naturally from 10 years ago to today and presumably five years from now, every, literally every situation of how you're gonna end up working with an artist is totally different, which is sometimes pretty miserable um, and sometimes nice. Yeah. And that's, that's interesting that it's always so different. Um, if, if you guys had to, like, for some reason, business wise or whatever, you're like, we need more artists to, to grow our business or something like what, and I can think of like, there's people who probably want to, to start a business like yours. And what would, what would even be remotely the first step in that situation? I like, in my opinion, I would think it would be they have to kind of just bump into one artist that they really dig and want to help and support. And then kind of from there, just wait until the next one happens in some way. But like, if you had to find more that were great fits, what would you do? Um, I guess, is it, are we talking, you have no experience as a manager and you're just trying to do it? Or are you talking about a seasoned manager? I guess it'd be kind of interesting to hear both, but I guess let's hear from from your guys' perspective as a season management. If if you were trying to expand your roster and like you you had to seek it out, like what would be the most common places you would look? I would call our agents that we work with and um, see if they're working with the new client or a client fired the manager or just kind of gauge the temperature there. 
um, I would call attorneys that we work with as well to see, you know, are they closing any deals for an artist that doesn't have a team? Um, and we would most likely as well call our label friends, you know, and let them know, hey, you know, if you're signing anything new, send them my way and have some room on the roster. I'm looking to expand and um, that that has never happened. I don't think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah everything is so everything is so word of mouth. And it, 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 thankfully for us, it has typically been in a good way. Right. I think if suddenly we were shut out of that word of mouth, that would be potentially painful for us. And and but really for better, for worse in between. And I think that, you know, this can be a negative, certainly a negative thing when you're talking about new people getting their chance that might be supremely talented, but just aren't in the right click, whether that's for location, um, accessibility reasons, whatever, demographics that you cannot be in that game of telephone, but also music industry, I think like many entertainment industries is so relationship based that, you know, it's kind of everyone sharing things all the time. And um, when the musical chair stops, hopefully you have the artist. Yeah. Well, when it comes to payment, and you don't have to get into exact numbers because you know that's that's your personal business. But like, what kind of range of? I mean, I'm guessing that most of what you do is commission based, right? And it, it covers certain things, and it might not cover other things. What's the kind of range? You know, as, as detailed as you want to get, or as vague as you want to get on on what you take for what you do. Well, um, it's kind of an industry standard. Uh, it's different different firms. Some take 15% of the gross income. Some take 20% of the gross income. Um, most rock managers that that we know and most of our peers take 15% and we do 15%. Mm. Gotcha. And one thing in the in the, the like one sheet that I got in you guys at first is that the kind of tagline that was at the very top was that the artists you manage make high four to five figures a month because their Gen Z talent own the majority of their catalogs and are taught how to invest their money. So that would be cool to kind of go over for the artists you manage. And of course, everything we talk about is going to be like a huge, it depends, it's different for every artist. But what's the most common biggest uh, revenue driver for, for the artists that you're working with? Sure. Again, we have a really large roster across the manager. So every artist is different. Many of those artists are similar sized, right? So there is a lot of overlap, but every artist business is, is really comprised differently, which is, uh, you know, ex an exciting opportunity for us. Like I've, in addition to loving music, I've also in a nerdy way, always just been into like business. And so every artist is a business that owns multiple sub businesses, royalty, music, royalty, publishing, merchandise, touring, stink, etc. So there's so many opportunities when developing an artist's career. Um, when Avanj and I started, all of our income, like literally our personal income from working with artists was only made in two ways. 90% uh, of it was touring income and the other 10% was merch income. That's because when we started, Spotify was not even in America. It was still just all iTunes and CDs and vinyl was years away from even modest popularity, let alone what we're seeing today. So we were only working with artists that could go out and play a hundred shows a year across the world, if not more. And 
some of those artists were playing those shows for a hundred dollars a night and still making a really good income and their t-shirts only $15. So much, you know, continues to change. Um, and, and the core of what we do, like is still really touring based. And and that goes back to what Avon said earlier about really developing a fan base. Um, we see that in ticket sales. Uh, if you have a really dedicated audience, they're going to show up and buy a 20, 25, 30, $35 ticket and be there. And that's how we know if the foundation we've been trying to build is actually working or not. Um, so touring is still a very large part of the mix, but certainly over the last five years, we have really developed our focus in ensuring that our artists own as much of their everything as possible. Um, that starts with masters, it ends with publishing. Um, almost, if not every single one of our artists owns anywhere from one song to their entire catalog and everything in between. Uh, for a very long time, we weren't doing anything with it, if that makes sense. Meaning it was just kind of on DistroKid, on TuneCore, on CD Baby, collecting royalties. And then over time, we started developing a theory, you know, this was well before COVID, that we really needed to be treating us almost as a record label, not in that we're taking any more income from our artists than we would if we were just managing them, but really using all of our great artist catalog is one piece of leverage, right? We have artists, if you add up, like you said earlier, monthly listeners is not a be all end all metric, right? Yeah. But um, our artists, if you put together our roster, we would have well over a hundred monthly million listeners just on our roster. So um, <laughs> that's a lot of streams. It's, it's probably 30 plus million streams uh, a week, just a week on Spotify alone, not counting all the other DSPs from just the artists that we manage. So what happens if we can take all that and leverage it for every other artist that we manage, right? It's, it's good. How can we go get a better deal right with Apple, Spotify, TikTok, getting Instagram ads, getting TikTok ads for free. That's what we've put a lot of focus on in the last few years. And it was a bet that ended up being very um, prescient during COVID because a lot of our artists were making tremendous money on their couch. You know, some were making four or five, six figures a month, literally just at home, not touring for the first time ever. And that is a model that we continue to be all in on and and really um, it's kind of a nerdy phrase, but like I, I want to own everything down to the metal in terms of like where, where the components start. That's how deep we want to be involved with understanding the music business, our artist business in music and how to leverage our artist music in this business. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So you, <laughs> I, I don't even, I don't even know how to ask about it, but you, you said you can get the amount the streaming volume that you have and go to the DSPs and actually leverage that in some way. Like, are you able to negotiate better, better uh, streaming? In a sense. So in a sense, um, I have another company called many have distribution uh, that works very closely with alternate side where we are a Merlin member. I'm not sure if you know what Merlin is, but Merlin is essentially the fourth seat at the table at the negotiating table next to Sony universal and Warner. Um, they are essentially a union of the largest independent label groups in the world. Uh, it's a nonprofit. So 
what Merlin does is for essentially a 1% fee goes in again, leverages a secretly distribution, Epitaph Records, us, a million labels you've never heard of that do billions of dollars together of business a year. And they go to Spotify, Apple, negotiate on our behalf for the best streaming rights possible. Um, you know, uh, more like bonuses structures. Uh, we get tons of Spotify and TikTok free ad money that we then can give to our artists for free, all this stuff. And thus we end up actually having a better rate for our artists than they do at DistroGid, CD Baby, TuneCore, et cetera. So that is where that leverage is coming from, right? And then it also has enabled us to make really great relationships with people at all these streaming services as well. So when we, one, when something goes wrong, it's an easy fix, right? Or, but two, hey, we have Artist X coming. Like, how can we get on a billboard in Times Square on a playlist cover here um, at a party there? And that's our job now, too. And um, we're working very hard to be good at it. Wow. That's really interesting. Uh, Yvonne, we haven't heard from you in a bit. Anything to add on to any of that? No, Zach. Zach's got this. Nice. Good job, Zach. <laughs> um, uh, we were talking a bit about uh, about touring before that. Um, when when you haven't you, you're talking about how the kind of biggest driver you have if, if an artist is is ready is is like can they actually sell tickets? Will fans go and purchase a ticket and actually come see them live? Which I think is a pretty reasonable like quality metric for for an audience. You know, because there's there's a lot of people I know who have huge streaming volume, but they could never do a tour. They wouldn't have anyone to come. I also know people who are kind of on the opposite end where they can tour, but they have practically nothing on, on streaming. <laughs> um, so if if you have an artist that is playing a show in a, in a market that maybe is not strong for them yet, what do you guys do to promote the show and, and get tickets sold? Anything and everything we can. Um, we have... Uh, we're lucky that we have someone working here named Emmy who handles a lot of tour marketing for us. Um, she's very, very creative with contesting and reaching out to local businesses around the venue. Like if there's a burrito shop or a coffee shop or whatever, to give away tickets. If there's a record store, she'll contact them, see if they want to do a giveaway. Um, if it's a big enough artist, we'll contact the radio station to see if they want to do a ticket giveaway. But we work very closely with the promoter. You know, when we book a show, it's not in a vacuum. There's a people on the other end. The promoter's in charge of making sure the tickets sell. And we work with the promoter along with the agent to ensure the promoter has what they need to market the show. So we will have our bands or our artists do shout out videos like, what's up, Grand Rapids? We're coming through on the 6th. Make sure you buy tickets now. And, you know, we do whatever it takes. And we're very communicative with promoters. And so if the show doesn't do well, it's not anyone's fault besides the fact that the band just, it may not be there yet. Yeah. Um, unless the promoter completely dropped the ball and didn't do anything with the assets that we sent them, then it's a bad promoter and it's on them. But we, you know, it's not unlikely that a band will go on a tour. And, we, you know, we have a lot of developing acts where we take it market by market. Maybe they smash in New York City and maybe DC only has 30 tickets sold in advance. Um, so we work really hard with contesting and 
giveaways and um, our social media, shout out videos. If there's any type of new music video, new music, new any news, we send it to the promoter for them to email it out to their email list for that venue. So that venue not only knows that it's just like another reason because you can only promote the ad map so many times before people are like scroll, you know, like they've seen it. So if we can give them more things to talk about, it's more reason for them to send information out about the show so that it's more reason for people to see the show's visibility and then come to the show. Right. The, the contesting idea sounds really interesting. When Every so often, an artist reaches out to me to ask about if I know about any ways they could use Facebook ads or anything else, but usually Facebook, if to to promote their show and get more tickets sold and and a lot of times there's a whole lot of complaints about the, the promoters and then like us making fun of them in some way. Cause like, why are they even called promoters if they're not going to promote the show? But you know, I, I've heard, I have heard great stories as well where things go swimmingly, but <laughs> um, this is a hard business, you know, like it, it's really a hard business. And I think it, I think promoter, there's a few people in the full stack of the music industry that are the easiest to, um, have friction with you know i think promoters are probably among the top of them yeah um but also some of our closest colleagues and friends are promoters that care as much as we do about the artists that we work with really and are that passionate i think the biggest thing about promoters are they're they're fans in a different way than a lot of other kind of people in the music industry are um some promoters will take a loss on an artist for years because they really believe that one day they are going to sell out that a thousand, two thousand, five thousand cap room. But you're also not wrong, right? That um, sometimes they don't, it doesn't feel like every promoter promotes. That being said, they might be in a, you know, let's just say they're in Philadelphia or Nashville where there's 10 different venues and five different promoters and they're trying their real estate cost is through the roof in the building that they either own or have to pay rent to. And they're trying to do 300 shows a year. Naturally, it's hard to promote that. And, and you might say, well, then they should do less than 300 shows a year. But then how do you necessarily have enough scale to pay your staff, especially when you're taking a loss on so many artists, right? Most shows are failures, you know, point blank. Um, there's probably a couple thousand shows a night in America, most of those shows lose money. So naturally it's, it's a really hard business. <laughs> yeah. A, a uh, but also of, promoters drive me crazy too. So. <laughs> a, a lot of artists I've talked to generally have the mindset of, of you know, they, they don't like the promoters. They think the venues are making an arm and you know, they're making a killing and they're barely paying the artists. And, um, it, it makes sense what you say that like there's obviously they own a business and they're they're trying to make ends meet and keep the, the location opening. And I've have heard stories about a lot of venues closing in the last few years, especially after COVID. Um, and the, the kind of thing that's been trending a lot on social media lately is the whole merch cut thing that venues have been doing. But it's been getting talked about more in socials. Is that is that related to that? Where since a lot of times these shows are losing money, the, the venues are like, oh, well, we can charge a commission on merchandise that artists are selling, or is that just like a separate thing? I think it's part of their whole business model to make money in as many ways as they can. They, they take a percentage, whether the show sells out 
board struggles. So it's it's just part of it. They got the bar, they got the merch percentage, the ticket sales. Um, so yeah, but at the end of the day, I, I do think promoters drive us all crazy. But I, I I don't a lot of the promoters that we know, especially the indie ones, I don't know too many of them are swimming in money. Right. So it, it, it it's a tough business on on their end too because they are they have to take the risk. Like Zach and I can sit here pissed off at a promoter. Well, we have no money on the line. Our time is on the line. Our maybe lack of commission if that show shit like shits the bed. But at the end of the day, the promoter is the one that put up sixty five hundred dollars or whatever the heck they did for the guarantee, and now you know they gotta they can eat, they have to eat that or hopefully make it back. Yeah, that that is a that is a great point that they they really do have essentially all of the risk. And I, it's a very, oh yeah, there's no question they have all the risk. Um, but also look, it's our job. We work in hopefully unison, harmony, whatever, with every cog of the machine, but it is always our job within reason and fairness to try to have more leverage and more points of victory for our artists, right? So right. would we rather pay no merch rate? Yes. You know, if, and if there are things we can do to pay no merch rate, we will do them. Um, but sometimes that's the other thing. A lot of our artists don't have leverage today. We, and we have to grow them to have more leverage tomorrow. As you said, some of our artists have like a hundred thousand monthly listeners, right? A lot of our artists that, um, didn't, that don't have a hundred thousand monthly listeners today did a year two, five years ago. And it's, Along that path is where the relationship with the promoter comes easier or harder, depending on how you look at it too. Right. But it's, that's our goal is to, in a lot of ways, having friction can be a success, not a failure. Yeah. Now for, for bands who are trying to find a booking agent or get on a tour for the first time or start playing shows. uh, Well, there's one band in particular I know that is like, desperately trying to find a booking agent and they have they've played like a couple shows but the they feel like they're ready to, to start you know playing bigger shows and and they were trying to find a booking agent and the, the guy talked to me and he was like every small company has been gobbled up by these like three big companies and it's they're all just so busy that they're not taking anyone on and um and you, you would know a lot better than than i would or he would but um one is, is that kind of the case right now that it's hard to, to kind of get into this if you're not established? And then two, what can indie artists do to to actually do bigger and, and greater shows or hop on tours? And I know that some artists have buy-ons and stuff. But. I think if you're a, a developing act um, and you're just starting out, you pretty much don't have a shot at getting on a national tour. Like I wouldn't, there, there's bands that are signed to record labels and have fans that are desperately trying to open so-and-so's tour. So the likelihood that that's going to happen is pretty unrealistic. Not saying it's impossible as nothing in the world is, but it's pretty unrealistic. I would say, you know, just like getting a manager, you know, do you sell tickets? Do you have any value? If you don't, why would an agent want to work with you? And I know it's like the yeah, but if I got an agent, I'd have value. Just like if I got a manager, I'd get a record. Not not necessarily. And the business, as Zach has said, is so difficult. And there's just every challenge there. No agent 
wants to take, I shouldn't say no agent. Most agents don't want to take an artist that's worth 10 tickets or 50 tickets in Massachusetts, but worth zero tickets from the rest of the, how do you, how do you do that? There's just no magic because it's not up to the agent to put them on a tour. It's not just the agent's job. So the agent, just because you get an agent, they still have to go through the other agents and managers that represent the artists that this band is trying to tour with. And if that manager, if someone comes to me and says, hey, I got this new act, they're worth 50 tickets in Boston, they're worth zero tickets in the rest of the world. I'm like, well, they're not getting on this tour. <laughs> so even just because they have an agent, that doesn't mean they get that tour because there has to be a value associated with it. Um, typically, if it's something where it's like a few key promoters, like in New York City, at Mercury Lounge, and they've played somewhere in Philadelphia, um, and they've played in Boston, and there's 50 kids. And promoters are like, I've heard of that band. They do well. And they're repeating the business and they're playing their monthly or every time they come, they bring a crowd. That will help get the attention of an agent because at the end of the day, we have to jump on things real early now too. People come already with their managers and their brother, father, whoever <laughs> is managing them because they had a song go up on TikTok or whatever the case might be. But I think Everyone wants to get in early, but no one wants to get in that early because that is just a lot of spinning wheels and a lot of time that is needed for that band. Just how Zach said earlier in the conversation, the band's got to do a lot of the heavy lifting or the artist has to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the beginning to have a bit of value for us to have something to work with. And it's it's no different on the agent side. But I think what they can do is, you know, play their local shows. I know that there's still basement shows or little side. They don't have to play at these professional venues and bring kids out, play for free, do what they can to get an audience so that when it does come time for them to charge a ticket at a venue, kids will come because they like the band. They've started to follow them. They feel an attachment to them. And then they can keep playing that venue, get in good with the promoter and be the local opener that the promoter jams on the bill because a touring package is coming through and maybe it needs a little help. And they know that this local can pull 50 tickets. Well, now they're gonna open in Boston. And that's kind of the go-to band in Boston. And then they they branch out and they play in New Hampshire or Connecticut or New Jersey. And maybe 25 of those fans trickle down with them. And it shows that they've got a drop. It is an overtime thing and it takes a while. But that's how you get an agent is by your fans traveling with you and you being worth tickets. Yeah. So the the, the real bargaining power is really like we we can draw this amount of tickets to this location and that's that's the that's the end of the deal. Which that makes yeah. a lot of sense. I mean that's 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 the actual currency of the <laughs> of the touring world. So it's I I've heard a lot of stories of of artists their rates are being negotiated based on like TikTok followers, Spotify monthly listeners and and other various shenanigans where either like they're they're losing out on opportunities in some way or getting paid less because of some digital number. And um, is there any is there any truth to that? Are you saying is what you're referring to more that like people kind of say that Spotify doesn't pay artists or something else? No, so I've I've it's been different for some other artists, but one particular person said that they noticed that bands generally are getting paid for their, their shows based on their online, see so their Spotify monthly listeners, TikTok numbers, and then other bands have said like, 
they've gotten dec- declined for to play a certain venue or or it hasn't worked out in some tour or whatever because of their either Spotify, usually it's Spotify, Instagram, or TikTok numbers. Um, and, and some of them feel that they they can pull a crowd. And they found that even though they can draw a crowd to a certain location, they their digital footprint sucks. <laughs> and they've mentioned, you know, who knows? I don't know how much of it is hearsay or not, but what have what have you seen on that? I think you're spot on that that's kind of bullshit often. Um, you know, we again we want artists on our tours based on how many tickets they can sell. Um, I'm just going to not say any names, but just for example, Avange Man, I'm looking at the stats right now. Avange Man is a band that has around 500,000 flat monthly listeners. Um, they're playing some 2,000 cat sold out shows that sold out instantly in the next month. I manage an act with 7 million monthly listeners, and uh, that cannot sell out more than 500 tickets anywhere in the world. Yeah. You know, um, there's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. Now, look, the inverse of that is that that means this artist, the one I manage, probably makes more digital income than Avanda does, right? Not probably. There's no question, right? Like that. That's a really easy math problem. Yeah. Um, but that does not mean that. Let's just say this artist is really playlisted, you know, everywhere, right? If you're just casually in a playlist that's getting listened to at a coffee shop 17,000 times a day or whatever, 170,000 times a day, that does not mean anyone knows who you are and that you have any value in the physical world, which is kind of a harsh thing to say, but that's really what we're talking about. Um, We manage artists with, you know, like 50,000 monthly listeners or less, and they can sell 400 tickets and more in multiple markets. and then again, like we have artists with millions of monthly listeners that can't sell 400 tickets anywhere. So I, I think like, I think what you're saying is true that this is an issue and, and it's really an issue of laziness um, or people not wanting to do their job well and actually think, oh, this artist might promote us on social media and we're going to sell a bunch of tickets. Well, if you have a kind of vapid audience, you're not going to sell any tickets. Um, but that, you know, that also goes back to the quality of what we're saying of like, maybe this booking agent isn't good, or maybe that promoter is not like a real promoter. Um, and that's where the music industry is a crapshoot. I always say that like the music industry is not a real place. It's all fake. Uh, and that's bad. It's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, it's not a good thing that like the music industry has no structure. It has, it enables some people to wildly succeed which is great, right? Like you can, you can fit through the cracks, right? Like, but you can like have a master's in business and not know a thing about music. And you could drop out of high school at 16 and be the smartest person here. Like those are typically not how the wor- the traditional world works. And there's, you know, 700 examples in between about how weird, good and bad it is that the music industry is, is not like a standardized place. But that's also how then you have people being like, well, you can't be on my tour if you have under 100,000 TikTok followers when that might not mean a thing. Yeah. I think in addition to that, when it comes to TikTok, and this is a little off topic, but kind of the same, there are artists who get a viral song, right? They have a viral moment and that's what gets them signed. But what's interesting, what I've discovered in, in my experience working with certain artists like that, 
um, people know the song. They don't know the artist. That's hugely different to have a song that's viral and you're making all this money and record labels are trying to offer you all this money and, 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 and now suddenly it feels like you're successful. But then when you try and put that artist on tour, there's literally nobody to come to those shows because they do not have any attachment, any emotional attachment. Because, you know, why does anybody go see music? Because they, it makes them feel something. They, they, there's a song they sing that, that speaks to them or the artist's message, right? That is hugely important. If an artist doesn't have that, what's the value there besides, you know, a fantastic song that everyone likes, but they just do not know who the artist is. And there's a huge difference between a viral song and a viral artist. Yeah, that that's that sounds really true. And then the, what we were saying before about the being on some coffee shop playlist is, is kind of that same thing where or, or even not, you know, not an editorial or there's some user playlists, but even algorithmic playlists, like in general, any playlist or people aren't even looking at their phone when they're hearing you. So they never see your name. And even if like even if they do see your name, they don't really know you personally. They might know your name, but that doesn't mean they'll do anything other than stream you. How do you think an artist can avoid that happening <laughs> and, and making sure that that fans are knowing them in addition to their songs? I think it's about personal content. I think it's it's once the song is out there, are they posting things about their personalities, their likes? Or, are they into cooking? Are they cooking with fans every day? How do they can? How do they interact with their fans? If fans are DMing them, are they talking to them in DMs, which is questionable at times as far as certain DMs go. But, you know, I, I, I think that if a, if you're interacting with fans and you're making them believe you and believe in you, that's how you become a bit more attached to them and, and have some sort of an identity. Um, I think one of the most important things also is get out of your house get out and go play a show in your local town. If you've got a song that's viral and you promote all those fans that are fun. Hey, do you like this song? Well, I'm playing here on Friday. And they have a video of them in front of the venue or whatever the case might be and, and have those people come out. It may only be 50 people, but that's that's how that now, oh my God, they're here first. And they, then you meet every single one of them at the merch table. And now these fans are completely enamored with this artist, word of mouth. Next time you play, it'll be a hundred. It's, it's doing a lot of social media talking. It's a lot of work. It's sounds easy because you're just in your house making videos, but you have to talk to every single one of your fans and then you have to bring it to real life. And that's a great way to make it real. Yeah. Well, what do you say to artists who hate social media and avoid it like the Black Plague? I I, I did w one of these interview style videos with someone who's like his whole shtick is helping artists with their social media content. And some people were like, awesome. And other people were like, TikTok is the devil. I'm not going on that trash children platform, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> do, do you feel like artists have to be on so social media nowadays, or is there a is there a path for people who are they're just they want to do the bare minimum digitally? I think if you want to do the bare minimum digitally, you're going to have the bare minimum success. Just like Zach was talking earlier, you know, you've got to work harder. You've got to love your craft and your art more than anyone else will. 
If you think that you're above social media, I mean, put tin foil on your TV and good luck trying to find some TV stations because you're in that realm. Like the, the world doesn't exist that way anymore, like it or not. I hate it. I hate that I got to learn another thing. I hate saying the word TikTok. Too many times we tell our artists, please post your TikTok and we have to take the content from TikTok and put it on YouTube shorts and make sure it's different on Instagram reels. Like it's not fun, but it is how you market yourself. And if you care about your art getting in front of people, you have to do that. If you do not do that, you will not have a successful career. Unless you want to physically drive around every day to every neighborhood in the world and knock on everyone's door and say, hi, I'm this person. Here's what my music sounds like. Does anybody have the capability of doing that? No. So it's hard. Yeah, it's really hard. And like we manage some artists that are, you know, somewhere between 33 and 45 years old. They're naturally they probably like they shouldn't actually be on TikTok, right? Like it could it could harm their career in the sense that it might like turn people off because it could be too try hard. Um, it's a really tough business. It's a it's a really unforgiving business. I think COVID has also only made that you know the the middle class. Not not to sound like a politician, but like the middle class of music is is being squeezed more than it ever has. Um, when I started. You know, I made a living from the middle class artists of the music industry, and I think they're harder and harder to come by. See, there you're really with a struggling artist for a long time, and most struggling artists never make it out of the struggle town until they, you know, quit to have a real job. Or you kind of get the thing that's doing really well. That's not to say we don't have any middle class artists. We have many, but there are less every day, I think, and, and that's really concerning. And then that's because you know what I was saying, like it was horrible that we had bands getting paid a hundred dollars to play a show, but like truly they would make a good living that way. And so would we offer them. Um, that would be more than impossible now. However, we have bands that now that have to play for 200 or $250 a show. And those bands are getting, are not able to make a living anymore when that, when that band, if they existed 10 years ago, would have been able to, right? Because, the t-shirt that we were able to sell for $15 now has to get sold for 30 or $35. Right. And, and that's not because we're making $20 more money, but there's just all these, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stressors in this business. Certainly. Yeah. man. I feel like this, this whole thing about the social media is going to be one of the, those outtakes I post on social media. So <laughs> that was a great, great, uh, great little bit there. But, uh, on the opposite kind of note with, with social media, um, what do you think about artists who don't want to tour or don't want to play, play physicals? Like they're online only artists. Is, is there a viable path for people like that? Yeah, I think there's like literally a viable path in every part of the music industry. There are, everything is a niche and that, that's a beautiful thing. It's that, though it make it's very hard to replicate. Um, we, one of our, um, employees Anna manages an artist named Mads Buckley. She currently isn't interested in playing shows, but she has a very vibrant online, you know, kind of Twitch career and makes music and does really well. Also, I, I work with an artist that, um, you know, kind of has a mental health um, situation where touring 
is just not, it's just not even an option, right? Like we, I think also like music is typically, has typically not been a very accessible place for both artists and fans if they are disabled in some way, right? That could be mental health, that could be um, physical health, could be a lot of things in the middle. Um, and I do think one great thing about social, about social media, the internet, et cetera, is that um, it does enable more career paths. And I think that's a very beautiful thing. And there's never been more artists ever in the history of the world that are making an unbelievable living from their music. That could be both touring based. That could be never playing a show in their life. And that is a real thing to celebrate. The, the issue is that there are also that many more musicians that are doing even worse than ever. Yeah. I know it's great. Like there's like a, I just saw a stat from music business worldwide today that said uh, there's now 120,000 songs uploaded to streaming platforms every day. I'm sure part of the increase is the new surge in AI music. And there's the whole sleepy sound, sleepy sounds, rain sounds, um, that kind of thing too. That's saturating it. But it is a little crazy just the volume of, of music out there. And, but on the same note, someone will tell me about an artist or 10 artists, and I haven't heard of a single one of them. And then I looked them up in Spotify, and they all have over, like, 5 million monthly listeners. So it's, it's this interesting world where, like, there's so many artists, and, you know, obviously the vast majority are getting practically no streams or doing nothing. It's, they're uploading because they wanted to try something, or maybe it's just for fun. They, they wanted to have their music online. Um, but there's so many artists that have, like, super nice businesses that, Almost no one knows who they are. They 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 have millions of people listen to music, but you can have like a giant audience where you're not even remotely a household name now because like everyone has these streaming services and and everyone has their own little pockets. No question. I manage an artist called Cave Town who has over three and a half billion streams across just on Spotify. Doesn't count any other place he has sold hundreds of thousands of tickets um he has never been on television he has never been on the radio most people over the age of 19 have never heard of him and will never hear of him <laughs> theoretically in a sense is one of the most successful artists in the history of the earth <laughs> and that's a really weird thing right like yeah. it's a very polarizing invisible world right now in every aspect of life obviously yeah. how could something be that big and no one know what it is at the same time. It's a it is a funny riddle. Yeah, there's one one artist I I worked with a little bit does like a countrywide and international tour like every year, and they have three billion streams in Pandora, and they get like a million monthly listeners in Spotify, and they've been around for forever. Never heard of them until I started talking to them. <laughs> you know, it was. Like I, when I saw the thing, oh, I'm talking to so-and-so, uh, I didn't know the name. And then I like, you know, looked them up before and this happens a couple of times. I look up before the call and I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just funny that, um, how often that stuff happens. You can, you can really have a pretty nice career with, without having to be some kind of crazy household name or celebrity in, in a way. Um, so one thing you guys preach a good amount about is the whole sustainable, uh, you want artists to own their masters, you want them to be able to make a sustainable business and, and not burn out doing it. And a lot of artists, uh, 
don't do any of those things. They get super burnt out They're They can't handle everything that they're doing and they're not doing things sustainably and they're not making any money. So with, on the, on the mental health and also financial route, um, what do you think is, is what's the most common problems you see artists doing or what are things artists can avoid to, to get all those things in check? lots well there's lots of things i'd say don't read the comments in your social media they stay away from the comments just just for uh, to keep yourself feeling good but i i think um you know we we keep a very close watch on our artists especially when they start touring to see how they're behaving to see how they're reacting did they start the tour and look one way and at the end of the tour they're 20 pounds skinnier or heavier, what's the deal? And we kind of dig in and and kind of keep an eye on them, have honest conversations with them. You know, we have resources for therapists and doctors. And, you know, there's a lovely foundation called Music Cares, which is a not-for-profit where if the artist can't afford therapy, but they need it for whatever reason. Music Cares is a wonderful resource that, that can help an artist get some funding for medical attention. Um, you know, it's a grueling business. And the reason why artists are in, encouraged to do this young <laughs> is because it does take a toll on you physically and mentally. And you're usually a lot more able to withstand that under the age of 30. Um, not saying artists over that can't, but it's just a lot easier to sleep on floors when you're 20 years old. Your back's a whole different person when you're 30. So I think physically and mentally, it's it's just, you know, trying to keep them on some sort of a healthy schedule. I mean, once they're on the road, it's difficult, but but keeping in touch with their tour manager um, and just being very inquisitive and somewhat, you know, we do, I do weekly calls with some of my artists that have like a rollout and I can just kind of monitor where they're at. So like they know that at least once a week we'll be communicating with them. But Zach and I keep very close contact with our our artists on the road um, and in general, and also with their tour managers, um, their whole crew, like we're pretty tight with all of them to try to, it just matter of keeping aware. It's hard to tell an artist, stop drinking, please eat more or don't eat as much, or don't be staying up till five in the morning, eating Chick-fil-A at 3 a.m. And then, you know, you've got acid reflux and now your vocal cords are crapped and you can't hit the notes. And now we've got, there are so many things. So like we do ask these kinds of questions. Well, when did you eat last night? And are you sick or is it just your vocal cords are flat? Like there's so many things we have to deal with when they're on the road to make sure that they're taking care of themselves. And they're also young. A lot of the artists we've worked with are, are really young. So they went from their parents' houses or their very first apartment. And now they're not sleeping and they're not, and they're, they're touring and it's, the, the schedule of touring is just you wake up, you get in the van, you drive six hours, you load in, you wait around, you wait around, you wait around, you look for food, you do sound check, and then you wait around a little bit more. Maybe you have some friends in town. Maybe you hang out, you play your shit, your set, you meet some fans, you go to the next city. Um, and that can be really grueling, especially for people with sleep issues or anxiety issues. So we notice if they're smoking too much weed, if they're drinking too much, like, all of those things are going to add to, you know, mood swings, um, lack of sleep, and also, you know, affect the health, but it's also going to affect performance. So 
we have to keep an eye on all of that. But it's it's just a matter of flagging it, being like, hey, I'm noticing this, like what's going on? And and he and hopefully, and this goes back to the trust conversation too, but our artists usually trust us enough to be like, you know, I just broke up with my significant other and I feel like or whatever. And you know, we kind of talk them through it and and are there for them. But it's it's we are very, very aware because I do know that we are dealing with young people. Um, and, and we want these young people to have as easy a time as they possibly can in the most difficult business. Yeah. I, I know someone that had a tour last year and he's, he's 40. He's been, he's lived off of his music for 25 years, been multiple labels and they do a tour every couple of years. I did this one this year and he's, he's 40 ish, 40 something, I think. And, uh, man, he was, he's like. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> He's like, I don't, I think this might be the last one because they're, they, they had to buy like a new bus because he said that most of the time that if they buy a bus, it's like trashed by the time the tour is over. Um, or it's resells for almost nothing because it's in such bad shape and you're, 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 they put bunk beds in it. They're sleeping in bunk beds with like three or four other guys. And, um, you said the same thing. Like, I think he said at one point he had COVID and, he, he didn't have time to get tested. He, he ended up finding out that it was, but he played like three shows with COVID as a vocalist. And he's like, it's like, I really shouldn't have done that. But like at the same time, we can't afford not to do it. And um, it's it's just like a nightmare, you know? And I feel like the pressures of everything, it, it's, you, know, you don't want to let all the people down. That's a big thing. I think Zach and I hear a lot too. Like we, you know, I had a, a Zoom last week that one of our smaller acts who didn't feel comfortable going on a fall tour um and to tell us they were crying because they didn't want to let us down because they knew how hard we worked for them and you know that that broke my heart it's like no that we're going to keep you safe it's not granted if you do this every tour yeah then it's a whole thing but it's this was a one-off and this is something that 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 she's going through something and and it you know, we, there is a lot of pressure on the artist for sure. You know, I've had an artist have a nervous breakdown the day before his tour started. His tour was starting tomorrow. The tour manager, the merch, the bandwagon, the entire crew was at his house. Oh, and God. he had been having panic attacks up to that point. And that night he called me crying from his bedroom to tell me that he can't go through with the tour and um, he needs to cancel it. And I said, okay. Stay in your room. I'll send everyone home. We worked at like 11 p.m. to get everyone out of the house um, and into a hotel and um, called his agent at 10 p.m., 11 p.m. with a, you're not going to like this, but. <laughs> um, and we had to cancel an entire U.S. tour oh, during part of the career where he was, he was just he was taken off. Like it was the best runway possible. A song was going to radio. The song was picking up steam, but these are people, right? So you got to think, well, we'll hopefully get another shot at it. Or, you know, the, the fans will understand and it's tough. So we've had a lot of experience with our artists going through some tough life changes. And especially a lot of the artists, you know, artists that say you know, that, that live in the digital space. I find that those artists have the most trouble touring if they have success online and then they go into the touring mode because they're making all this money by literally chilling in their living or playing video games. And now you're asking them to eat shit, like literal shitty food on the road. 
and you're asking them to not sleep and to sweat and not feel clean and not look their best because they're getting ready in green room, green room mirrors or bathrooms at the venue. And, you know, especially females, it's, it's really hard. And it's kind of like, you know, why am I doing this? And, and that, that is the, the biggest challenge. So with those kinds of artists, we're always super attentive in the beginning. We don't do the tours too long. We try to make the tours if they're headlining a little bit more bite-sized, only hitting important cities, hitting the venues we know are going to make them feel good when they get off stage. So the rooms aren't too big. A lot of it is feeling accomplished and a lot of these artists thrive on that. So just trying to be smart about the tours, but it's it's very, very tough. They get COVID on the road and then you have to cancel shows and now you're out of money and you're in the middle of the fucking US <laughs> and you're sick with COVID and we have to quarantine you and the whole tour package goes down. So everyone has to be careful too. It is a very hard business and I don't, I don't, it, we are very empathetic to artists because we get that because we go on the road. There's times where I'll, I'll go out with my artists for a couple days um, I've been in van tours, you know, not too long ago. My back can't really handle it now sitting in the van from, you know, Denver to Salt Lake City, but uh, I've done it and it sucks. I, I'm starving all the time because I don't like to eat shitty food and, and I want to sleep, but we have to get up at, at 6 a.m. because we have a 10 hour drive. Um, it's hard. So it it's like when artists say like, I really want to do this earlier. I'm like, do you really though? Like, because <laughs> there's a lot that comes with it. It's not, you know, I think TikTok and, you know, even reality TV shows have made it seem like being famous is very easy. Maybe it is for some people. I, I would love to know who they are and manage their career. But yeah. um, I think that nobody sees the grind. It is a, such a difficult thing. And then Especially, you know, as an artist, you could post something and now any any jerk can come on there and be like, your music sucks. I liked your old shit. I hate the way your hair looks. Like, you're fat. Like, it's awful. Like, the, the public can be really, really harsh on these artists, too. So you have to have thick skin in so many ways. Yeah. So it's it's tough. Yeah. Not a job that Avon and I want. <laughs> you, you, you guys would much rather be behind the scenes. Uh we're still oh, still yeah. part of the industry, but not you know on stage, not riding around the country. Are are both or either of you musicians, artists in any way, or were you did you used to be? I played guitar growing up. I still play a little guitar, but not um nothing uh commercial. <laughs> yeah. So you 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 both kind of get into this just because you love love music. Yeah. Yeah, we we loved music more than we could uh play an instrument <laughs> yeah yeah awesome guys well we've been going for about an hour is there anything that you want to bring up or leave people with um thank you for having us feel free to check out our website alternate side.co if you're interested in checking out any of our great acts we've got a bunch of awesome artists released albums this year some recent ones are Meet Me at the Altar, uh, Hot Mulligan, uh, to name a few. We have a lot of new Cape Town music this year, uh, Mads Buckley, and and many more across, again, from kind of metalcore, hard rock music to pretty pop music and everything in between. Cool. What about you, Ivanch? 
Anything to leave? Well, the that with? just plugged the whole company. So <laughs> thanks for that. That, that was really good. Uh, I appreciate you having us on, Andrew, and um, you know, to any artist out there, just I I don't mean to make it bleak or seem hopeless. Just keep <laughs> working hard, and if you're passionate about it, it won't feel hard. I mean, every, every artist we work with is does it, and they're passionate about it, and it's hard, but it's doable. But you just got to be ready for it. And and that's the one thing we just want to preach is just making sure these artists are, are realistic. 